Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. like to talk a little bit uh, now about um, silence and impermanence and um, <coughs> the nature of the mind. Um, and I don't know if I can tie all those things together, um, but we'll see. And love also. <clears throat> so um, I'll just start with a little passage by um, th- this is from uh, one of the journals um, of Thomas Merton um, I actually haven't read a lot of Thomas Merton but I'm obsessed with his journals so uh, I don't really know what his writings like other than his journals which are my favorite um, um, pieces of writing of his Here's what he says about practice. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. I'll read it again. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. And, of course, when we think about love, we think about another person. Um, This isn't really the only way to think about love. And... um, the tendency, as I'm sure most of us are starting to realize, uh, in uh, the habit patterns of mind is to try to twist everything that we experience to somehow fit an image that we have of how things should be. And it seems that so much of our lives we live in this way where we're Uh, caught up in ideas about how things should be. And uh, then we expect that life in general, and of course other people, should fit that image and that expectation. And um, we're always wrong. Um, Because other people and life in general um, never match up, really. And actually, when other people do try and match up with the image, um, then um, they're not being themselves. And so there's no relationship happening. Is it possible even just to walk down the street and just let the world be as the world is? There are 60 of us, and we practice sitting meditation for a couple of days together and then we go out and we practice walking meditation in the street and uh, the maple leaves uh, have mostly fallen off the trees in this neighborhood somehow with the maple leaves falling off the trees the sky is more available Um, 
I'm, I'm not used to walk, seeing so much sky uh, in this neighborhood. And it's interesting with the, the leaves falling, how there's so much color on the ground and so much sky at the same time. And yet, uh, we can also walk down the street and be totally obsessed with something else. Um, not noticing uh, the quality of the sky, of the light, of the sounds. And um, we can walk down the street um, not being able to forget ourselves. And so there seems to be a relationship between um, being able to allow for all of these elaborations and stories we have to settle and love. Because um, love in the widest sense, so we mean just a sense of interconnection, a sense of belonging, a sense of interdependence, um, is the opposite of alienation. And alienation seems to come from the split that we are responsible for, where being so caught up in our ideas about things, we alienate ourselves, we separate ourselves from reality. And um, that's why, and I think sometimes it takes a little while for us to understand this, the word dukkha, which is usually translated as suffering in the Buddhist tradition, um, which I like to translate as a, a pervasive sense of unsatisfaction. Um, I also like to translate dukkha as um, restlessness. And um, it sometimes is hard to swallow that dukkha is self-created. It doesn't come from outside of you. And it takes only a little bit of meditation practice to see the way we generate so much of our suffering and our discontent. Even just noticing sound, being able to let sound be sound is no problem, right? And then as soon as we start deciding about sound, um, we split off from the sound, like, dislike. And that leads to all kinds of other stories that entrench us further and further in this separateness, hemming, hemming us in um, so that we're, we're not connected anymore <coughs> to what's happening. And that's just with sound. And um, then at the same time, we can also uh, just walk and listen to maple leaves smell them decomposing, and um, maybe for a minute even feel yourself just like one of those maple leaves. We also blossom and express ourselves, and then we also fall and uh, decompose and deteriorate. Um, and actually, uh, it's important for human beings to also be able to fall apart and to decompose to allow these stories that we tell ourselves um, to fall into the earth and to regenerate. Um, because the storytelling functioning of the mind uh, never really stops. It keeps pumping out stories and uh, they get more <coughs> creative and they don't seem to really stop. We all love a good story and stories kind of guide us in our life and it would be naive to assume that we can live without stories. Um, and yet, when we don't see stories as stories, and we think that that's actually how things are, um, at a superficial level, it gives us some relief. Because when you can tell a good story about another person, uh, at a sociological level, this is what we do in war, right? We, we get nationalism is always strong at times of war because it defines who the enemy is. And then it gives us some relief because we can understand a situation. And yet, it's so superficial. It's so superficial. And um, 
And when we're caught up in these stories, essentially what we're trying to do is to create for ourselves a sense of permanence. And all suffering stems from turning what's inherently impermanent into something permanent. And uh, we want our relationships to be permanent. We want our ideas of ourselves to be permanent. When joy occurs, we want it to be permanent. When pain occurs, we forget that it's impermanent. And so in a way, the the core issue that we all face is um, how in the midst of our most difficult and uh, unhelpful and unskillful habits and addictions, we are able to find space around those very symptoms. Enough space that we can see their temporary nature. Because most of us (coughs) congeal the self or our self-image around our negative habit patterns. And um, the reason why we get caught in them is because we only see them as permanent. And uh, at a superficial level, this is helpful. It helps us recognize a pattern. But um, the meditator, which is you, knows that um, nothing uh, is... um, fixed. We have billions of sensations every day that come and go. Billions of thoughts. Billions of feelings. How many feelings have you had today? And yet, they don't hang around. They come and they go. Visitors. And yet, when we fixate on these impermanent patterns, we build a sense of self. And um, we even define ourselves around these patterns. And um, we forget how to find spaciousness around um, our strongest addictions. This is true for me anyways. I don't know about you. But it seems that um, just being able to find some space around our most difficult moods um, would help our lives so much. And that's why some formal practice is required. Because in a way, part of this practice is a kind of training of the mind um, to see in a different way, and um, to gain insight literally to look inside what's happening and not just through the lens of our theories about what's happening. So we can be in touch with who we are and to also be in touch with our basic, basic needs and um, to uh, be cared for, to be loved, to love others, to care for (coughs) others, to serve. People are most happy when they serve. And um, people are most happy when they're helping others. And that manifests in different pattern for each individual person. Um, (coughs) And one of the best ways to help others is to not see them as other. And when we're so caught up in our theories about everything, we're turning everything into other, into an object. So in a way, I said I wanted to talk about silence and impermanence. And in a way, silence and impermanence is actually the same thing. Um, Impermanence is not objective. Every philosophy says that everything is changing. But for the meditator, we see that not only is everything changing, but the apparatus we use, body and mind, to see impermanence is also impermanent. And every story we have about impermanence 
and about body and mind is also impermanent. <laughs> There's nothing to hold on to. And, um, and the response to that kind of visceral understanding of impermanence is silence is being to open, be able to open to experience uh, from a place of silence where maybe we've run out of theories and that this is a good thing. Theories of ourselves, theories of others. And so how is silence for you? And not just the literal silence of being in a room and not speaking today so far, but also... Um, just the silence that happens sometimes between thoughts <coughs> or between breaths. Impermanence is very silent. And silence connects us with deep human value. Uh, it connects us with each other. And as I said yesterday, there, is so, there are so many levels of attention and mind and experience that you can't get to with thinking. You can't think into deep stages of meditation. Thinking can't get you there. I mean, imagine if it could get you there. Imagine if you suddenly got enlightened, and at the moment of enlightened, you said, enlightenment, you said, Oh, enlightenment, exactly how I thought it would be. Imagine if anything was like this. You have a relationship with a friend or a lover or a child or a parent, and you say to yourself, oh, good, they're behaving exactly as I need them to be. And at some level, this is what we want. We want permanence. And yet, this is a, a very artificial kind of permanence. And the meditator opens up to impermanence and finds really solid ground there. It's just like water. You know, water can be very solid ground. Just because something is moving doesn't mean that it can't be a ground. You know, in Ontario, in spring, there are all those amazing bugs that can walk across the water. Do you ever watch them? Very solid ground for them. And impermanence, too, is a more solid ground than all of our thoughts about things. So meditation practice is awareness. And... Um, what we're cultivating is a meditative state of mind where silence uh, cancels out um, reactivity. And it's interesting, even as I'm speaking now, just to, to notice in your own mind uh, what kind of degree of reactivity is there and to just pay attention to how you're listening. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with what I'm saying or swallow everything that I am offering, but actually to listen with your body, to listen with your heart, without having to continually approve and disapprove and see what connects with your worldview, what doesn't. Just like when we walk and we notice the maple leaves, we don't have to invent anything about them. So silence is the forgetting of you. And when you can't forget about yourself, when you can't let your thoughts and your experiences be as impermanent as they are, then your body screams at you. Because um, even the experience of discomfort and pain is impermanent. And when you can't allow um, what's arising to unfold and pass away, 
your body starts screaming at you. And this is true with other people. When you can't let other people be themselves, they will also start screaming at you. When it's 2 a.m. and you're going to the fridge for your ninth dessert and you can't return to something other than your uh, desire, when you can't find the breath, when you can't find neutrality, when you can't find your sanity, um, your mind just yells at you. So in a way, this practice of returning and returning and returning to present experience, um, which can be at times so challenging, is so practical. It's incredibly practical. So what's really hard when we experience pain, and this can be emotional pain or physical pain, it's hard actually really to know the difference, um, is not the pain. What's, what's upsetting is the sense that we create that uh, this is never going to end. And yet the meditator knows that it does end. Everything we experience flows, comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. And this is the heart of the practice. Impermanence is so easy to understand philosophically. Um, and then at a deeper level, we also see how everything is interdependent. That all your moods and your feelings arise in conditions, and those conditions are impermanent, and they change. And your moods are dependent on conditions, which are always changing. And to say that everything is interdependent for the meditator is actually wrong. It's actually not true. It's that things are so interdependent that there's no such thing as a thing. That um, everything we experience is so connected to everything else that it's hard to even know what a thing is. The sound is so dependent on the way that this ear functions and the unique habits in this particular ear, I can't hear like a dog can hear. That I can't even talk about sound independent of the ear. That I can't take you in independent of the way I take you in. All we have is our subjectivity. And so it's so important to study the way we organize our experience from moment to moment. So we can see... Um, how much of reality we're actually able to take in. <clears throat> Are there any questions or comments before I try and tie impermanence, silence, and what else was I supposed to say? love together questions about practice or comments of what what I've been talking about yeah I guess um, when I was walking um, I tried to focus for a while and and after a while you know my mind just goes tangents and everywhere yeah and I try to bring it back but it's just it's kind of chaotic uh -huh. um, I was just wondering I guess it takes a while for you to take the practice to continue on uh, yeah. be able to refocus really yourself I guess. yeah 
Yeah, and so every time you come back, you're planting a pattern. Yeah. You're planting a pattern in your mind. You're planting a pattern in the body that you can come back. And I would add, since you are a corner of the culture, you coming back to the present moment is also planting a seed in the culture. And um, a much-needed seed. And uh, those patterns start to build up. Uh, once in Cape Cod, I was teaching a group of psychiatrists, and they said that this practice is like cognitive therapy on steroids. <laughs> and I really liked that, because in a way, it's, you know, psychology 101, right? That every moment of perception is planting a pattern. But how powerful it is, you know. The word mindfulness comes from the Sanskrit word smrti. In, in Pali, it's sati, which really means to remember. And mindfulness is describing the ability to come back to the object of meditation. That's it. That's what mindfulness is. It's a kind of returning. And it's establishing the ability to return. Moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. And this amazing thing happens when you keep doing that, that eventually you don't need the technique anymore. And it just, you, you return enough to the breath that then sometimes for five seconds and sometimes for minutes and sometimes for hours, you get a sense of the stability of awareness. Where there's no returning anymore, there's just a kind of meditative state of mind. And um, things are not as bumpy. Can you comment at some point today about when in practice and when not in practice? Living versus being in practice. I know the sounds. It was about, you commented about how it screws up on relationships or in <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a more vivid word. Yeah. Well, you know, in the formal practice, there's very specific techniques we're doing. And then the question always is, you know, when I'm on the subway, should I meditate? And the answer is no. When you're on the subway, you should be on the subway. When you're with your kids, you should be totally with your kids. When you're changing diapers, when you're washing dishes, change diapers and wash dishes. Fully in the activity. And... Um, when we're in formal meditation, we're cultivating a skill that then can allow us to shift. We talked about that shifting yesterday. So that um, we can be fully in whatever the next experience is. And in a way, sitting meditation is very different than walking meditation. Well, when we're walking, there's a lot more movement happening. The breath is not as quiet. There's a lot more stimulus. Um, it's a different practice. And so we shift into that practice. And then when you leave here, you have to get in your car and do driving meditation. And driving meditation is a lot different. So in a way, um, the formal sitting practice is giving us very specific tools that we then take into all the corners of our life. And um, at no time, except for maybe right now, has meditation ever been taught divorced from ethics? And so traditionally, you would learn meditation practice and ethics simultaneously. So we can see how our state of mind uh, contributes to the flow of our actions. And um, so, for example, one of the primary principles of um, um, ethical practice out of this tradition is nonviolence. So that means that in our formal practice, we're practicing non-harm. That means even internally, not having the intention to speak to ourselves in a way that causes harm. Not having the intention to cause harm um, with other bodies through speech, through our actions, through mind. Um, and these are different ways, as the practice deepens, that we start to see the relationship between the practice and daily life. 
some people like to say everything is practice. You know, I don't need formal practice. It's all practice. And I love the idea. But it seems that we need some kind of formality for most of us um, so that we can work with all of the range of states of mind. Um, so that then in a moment where you're speaking with a friend and they're telling you something you don't want to hear, um, there is a way that you can stay present with them as they're speaking. You see this in psychotherapy practice where uh, any, you know, it's so interesting, you know, because of the work I do, I, I have often um, done psychotherapy with people, uh, clients who are meditators, and it's amazing how much more efficient psychotherapy is with a meditator because they can report on their experience without jumping out of it all over the place. Less dissociation, so many uh, ways that they can stay in the relationship without trying to escape. And as most of us know who do clinical work, you know, most of the work you're doing in clinical work is just getting the person back again so that you can have a relationship. And, uh, or getting ourselves back again so we can be in relationship. Maybe it's a little more of that than the other. So we can be in tune. So these are some of the ways that the practice can, can show up in, in daily life. Yes? Can you speak um, to the practice of having music in the background or uh, instrumental music or nature sounds while yeah. you're meditating? Yeah. Um, when we're meditating, it's helpful to really um, um, Tune in just to whatever is occurring. So, you know, if you want to put on music to try and get into a certain state of mind, I, I encourage you not to. And so, for example, if you live in an area, well, actually, wherever you live, there's never silence. There's always a hum of a refrigerator. Um, you know, I remember that one of the hardest places I ever meditated was in Costa Rica. The, the, the sound of the forest was so loud. It was louder than, and I, you know, I live in Parkdale. It was louder than Parkdale. <laughs> and um, so the purpose of meditation is to open up to present experience. So whatever's there, open up to that experience. Whether it's a smell or sound. The first time I ever went on retreat, they were building a monastery next door. And so the entire retreat was hammers and saws and, you know, and this was the focus of our meditation practice. And for the first day, it was, I, w I wanted to go home. I mean, I signed up for this relaxing retreat and everything's supposed to be all calm and, you know, and it wasn't like that at all. And yet, those sounds were nothing compared to what was going on in my own mind. So a few of you in here were on retreat with me in the spring and, uh, you know, on that retreat, at the end of the retreat, one person said, oh, silence? We were in silence? Because you get in silence and you hear your own volume. You know? So I encourage you, and I'm going to talk this afternoon about how to develop a sitting practice, um, just to keep it really simple and to not try and get anywhere. Eventually, as some of you know, I like to teach with the eyes open also, so that we're not even going inward. We're just here in the room open. We don't need the room to be any different than it is. So, um, and we touched on this a little bit from your comment yesterday, you know, you, you can walk through the annex. And uh, one day it can be incredibly irritating, and the next day it can be peaceful, and the next day it can be torture, and you know, and this happens all the time. Yeah. And so, how to open to life? Yeah. As a clinician, well, yes. I think one of the most challenging things is to help our clients or help my clients understand the, the concept of impermanence. Yeah. Especially when they have very chronic depression, serious, severe anxiety, and a host of other clinical yeah. issues. 
when they are very depressed, mm -hmm. their mind talk is extremely negative, and they believe mm -hmm. that those negative thoughts yes. are permanent. Yes. Whereas anything that's positive, like joy or yeah. um, you know any evidence that would suggest that they're not as bad as they think they are, yeah. or that they're incompetent or whatever, yeah. that is impermanent. So the concept of impermanence in their yeah. in their visual scope. Um, it only applies to anything that could be positive in their life. Uh -huh. And permanence comes with anything that's negative. Yeah. And with cognitive therapy, you really try to yeah. do a lot of work uh -huh. to challenge some of those, what we call rational beliefs from yeah. that perspective. Yeah. But, you know, to bring people to the state where they can understand that everything is impermanent. Yes. And that a thought is a thought. Uh -huh. And that that's what it is. Uh -huh. And it comes and it goes. It's a big, big challenge. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we're, we're sort of thinking along those lines and how to apply it in different contexts. But yeah. it's one of the greatest challenges, yeah. you know, as a clinician to yeah. come to that point, but to help your clients and the people mm -hmm. you're trying to help, especially a lot who are not into meditation, who, you know, think it's kind of woozy-goozy mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't want to go there, or mm -hmm. who have difficulty even sitting still mm -hmm. for the 30 seconds you were talking about yesterday, yeah. where the mind is just... Yeah. The mind is actually very abusive. Mm -hmm. So I think the issue of impermanence is very critical, but I think mm -hmm. it's also a great challenge to achieve that state of belief. Mm -hmm. And especially in the real world, yeah. or what we see as the real world, which is out there, yeah. where there's a lot of negatives as well, yeah. feeding into the beliefs of some mm -hmm. of these folks. Yeah. So that's just an observation. Mm -hmm. But it is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Also, we're trained as clinicians um, through the way that we diagnose people to think that a person is something. Um, when I was a kid, my best friend w was uh, my uncle, Ian, who was schizophrenic, and he lived uh, from when he was 15 until he died when he was 55 um, in and out of the hospital on Queen Street. Back then, it was just called 999. <laughs> and after school, this was when kids could actually take the TTC alone. Uh, I would take the transit uh, almost every day after school. And I would go hang out with him for an hour uh, before I went home. And um, it was the place in my life where I felt the most sane. And um, so they would sit in a room. And uh, so this was, you know... Everybody supposedly in that area was schizophrenic at the time. And, um, you know, they're also in that hospital partly because they can't integrate socially, presumably. That's how I understood it when I was a kid. And yet, that was the tightest-knit community I've ever really encountered. Um, they had a way of buying cigarettes and distributing cigarettes that was so complex and worked so perfectly Whoever came into a little money would go across the road and buy cigarettes for everybody. And um, there was a kind of generosity among them that was so profound to me. And I would go home and, you know, people in my family would say, oh, you know, you know Ian is schizophrenic. And, and I, I would always think to myself, I never thought of impermanence at that time, but I always thought to myself, he isn't, he, schizophrenic isn't something he is. So I remember how profound that was as a kid. I would always say that to myself, you know. Depression is not something you have. And the Buddha in his four foundations of mindfulness, um, and, you know, for those of you that are, have been in the year-long course, you know this, but, you know, one of his core teachings is to be able to watch the breath arise and pass away. And then noticing the absence at the end of the exhale. Then watch sensations arise. It's easy to watch sensations arise. But it's much harder to really be aware of the absence of sensations. And then, once you can start to do this, he starts adding other mental states, like being aware of when greed is present and being aware of greed as absent. And he goes on and on and on. And then when he talks about the hindrances... Um, he talks about being aware of when obstacles are present 
but also their absence. And I think one of the skills as clinicians that we can really help our clients with is being able to notice when certain symptoms that they're presumably defining themselves by, that we're often defining themselves them by, um, are present, but also really uh, observing and talking together about when they're absent. And one of the techniques we do in the year-long course is practicing, we do this as role play, uh, you know, imagining we have a very anxious client and, um, and we work very creatively in groups trying to practice how to help them bring awareness to when in the meditative, or sorry, when in the clinical situation their anxiety is not present and really articulating when you feel them totally there. You know, or if someone is, is um, always agitated and define themselves as being restless, to also talk together about when you notice in the session the absence of restlessness. And that's one of the ways we help them notice impermanence. That we define ourselves in ways that create suffering for ourselves. And um, this is a very, very uh, profound thing to see. Um, we all know philosophically that the self is socially and culturally constructed. But to actually see that uh, is so different than just knowing that idea. And um, that's how we explore impermanence. And if you have time to take the year-long course, we'll go into more detail. But I think what you've said is really just so so accurate. There is impermanence and yet there is also um, this desire just to have everything comfortable and known. We fall back. I told you about this yesterday. I said, you know, one of the things that will show up in these two days is not just the good intention of waking up, but also the part of you that wants to shut down. And uh, it's interesting to see that coming in also. Um, last week at Center of Gravity was a, uh, we had poetry night and um, one of the poems I read was by Isa Isa uh, was a, a Japanese poet and uh, had quite a life uh, was a meditator and um, fell in love uh, not until he was 50 and um, when he was 50 he met somebody and uh, they had kids um, he had three kids in a row three years in a row, and each child died before they were one. And imagining that happening when you're 50. So um, I think the first two were sons, and then his daughter died, uh, so he was 53. Uh, his daughter died before she was a year old. And this is third child in a row. And... Um, so one of Isa's practice was to write poems. His hero was Basho, who some of you might know invented haiku uh, poetry uh, a century earlier than Isa. And um, Isa wrote a poem right after his daughter died about impermanence. And it goes like this. The, the world of dew is the world of dew. And yet, and yet. I'll say it again. The world of do is the world of do. So, if you've ever uh, done meditation practice in the morning, you know that every morning you look out the window, especially if you're in Japan, and what's on the ground? Do. And yet, do, an hour later, is gone. So it's impermanent, do. Um, and yet, somehow, it's always there, right? This paradox where it comes back and comes back. You can count on the do in the morning. But it's not the same do. It's not the same do. And so his response to the do, to impermanence, is, and yet, but twice, so the world of do is the world of do. 
So this world of impermanence is the world of permanence. And yet, we still go on. Lee Po said it another way. He said, you know, um, when I woke up, I realized that I am nothing other than mountains and rivers and stars. So in a way, our unique life is temporary and evanescent. And when we really open to that temporariness, it opens us up to a connection to something so much bigger than us. And um, this is what comes with insight into impermanence. I'd like to actually just mention something else about Isa because it's such a heavy (coughs) poem. We could talk about that poem for a few days. But right after that poem, he starts writing the funniest, amazing poems. Um, Here's a a great example of one. Um, This is coming across a frog. He comes across a frog that's so small that it's barely going to make it across a log. That's the background. And you can imagine what it's like for Isa. You know, his daughter's passed away, three kids in a row. What happens in his heart when he sees a frog not quite making it? Here's what he writes. Puny frog, don't give up. Isa is here. Puny frog, don't give up. Isa is here. Can you do this with your own heart when you're caught up in sadness? Don't give up. The breath is here. Someone commented after the day yesterday how easy it is to sit in the company of other people. It helps you not give up. Here's... uh, one of Isa's last poems. In my house, mice and fireflies get along. In my house, mice and fireflies get along. Could you imagine that you do this with your whole body? It's like your whole body is a house. And you invite to your house all of your neighbors... I mean, literally, you know, the drunkard next door and the person who built the weird fence behind you and the person across the street whose renovation you don't like and, you know, the people who you really like next door and then, you know, you just, you invite your whole neighborhood, right? And in a way, meditation practice is like this. You know, I hope that one of the things you're learning about meditation is that we're not trying to achieve a state, And uh, there is a place for meditating, trying to find the light, or to connect with God, or to, you know, get into a certain peaceful state. That's not what we're doing. We're here to really open to how things are, to how things happen. And a, a deep awakening is possible when we can wake up um, by using all of those neighbors. You have them all over for a party, and everyone is allowed. Everybody. Every corner is allowed. And then you can start to feel your life as having value. Because you're not leaving parts of yourself out. And so this is the path of practice. The path of love. And when you live a more sane life and a simpler life and a more compassionate life, it helps others. If you have a car that is very expensive, um, (coughs) if you have a house that requires so, so, so much maintenance, that's maybe bigger than you need. 
if you have shopping habits that require um, you know, some crazy amount of hours in your job every week to pay for your credit card bills, that's uh, not a simple life. And then you don't have time. And these are hard times now. Maybe some ways we're in a little bubble in Toronto. But if you travel a little bit, which I do a lot, um, there are a lot of people without work. And being without work creates anxiety. And yet it also wakes us up to what's important and can be such a good wake-up call. And so this is a path of renunciation. And we come to realize that, you know, we don't need so much to be able to practice. I mean, do you have everything you need to practice? And to stay connected to what's important. And sometimes, even if you don't understand any of the technique, just being able to sit still for two days, at the end of the two days, we start to feel more connection to what's really important. And um, that's a part of this practice so under-articulated um, in our culture, where we think that we need things externally to make us happy. And um, some of us just can't see um, that our thoughts are just driving us madly forward and our incessant uh, desires. Just crazy how much um, unconscious thought propels us. And that's why this practice is so important. Just as you were talking, it just brought up something for me. I had a client who they hadn't lost their job yet but they worried about losing the job and they were very unhappy and, and always stressed and always yeah. stressed and nothing we could work on could change that. Yeah. And then another example, my sister, my brother-in-law, who mm -hmm. he did lose his job mm -hmm. and he became mindful in a way because they changed the way they lived and they're doing just fine. It's not mm -hmm. easy, but they're doing mm -hmm. just fine. Yeah. So the mm -hmm. one was in a state of of unhappiness by their own cause because nothing had happened, nothing bad had happened yet. Yeah. And then the other, they just adjusted. They yeah. just, they realized what needed to be changed and they're not, they're doing just fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the CN Tower is built so that it blows around up there. Yeah. And um, human beings that do well are human beings that can fall apart. If you ever go to a forest after a forest fire, it's so beautiful. Some of the best flowers show up right after the forest fire. And if you really look closely at uh, a forest after a forest fire, um, you can really see um, a, a healthy system. Human beings that can fall apart and can change are healthy. Computers are not healthy systems because they can't regenerate themselves. That's an example of a system that breaks down. And some human beings uh, are more like forests and some humans are more like computers. And the humans that are more like computers are the ones who probably end up in your office. <laughs> we need to be able to break down and fall apart. And um, we need to be able to fall apart in such a way where we don't disintegrate, but we unintegrate. And for those of you that are, cl are clinicians who can drop so deeply into your meditation practice that you can actually watch your mind fall apart, there is a kind of wisdom that you get from that where you can then accompany people in a way that is... Um, so deep because you know what it's like to, to, to shed and to fall apart and um, 
the interesting thing is, is that when you fall apart, uh, it's what connects you with other people. When we're really sure of ourselves, you know, invincible, we're not connected. You know, there's a kind of arrogance in a way that comes with attention to one's persona. And um, Shogyam Trumpa calls this embryonic compassion like the compassion one has for an embryo. It, it's not even verbal. Um, he says, when you're in touch with your raw spot, he calls it, you automatically get embryonic compassion. When you're in touch with what's raw in you, then automatically you're connected with others who are just as raw. In May... Uh, we are going to be doing a center of gravity, which I'll tell you about this afternoon, is going to be doing a street retreat. I, I don't like the word retreat, so I like to think of it as street plunge, where we go uh, on the street and we do a retreat, a plunge, where we go without, we don't bring a change of clothes, we don't bring any money, no food, and we just go around the city uh, living on the street for three days, mostly in silence. Uh, looking closely at everything and um, waking up to how things are and interdependence. And we find places to sleep together and we figure out how to get food and um, we live homeless to simplify. And um, because most of the time we walk around only looking at what we want to look at certain bodies, certain faces, certain cars, certain architecture. And uh, this is a way of, of, of dropping that and seeing our city, which is diversity, is life, from a different perspective. And um, so in a way, you know, when, when you have a, a lot invested in your job and in security... Um, there is always a fear in the background that you can lose that. And um, it takes some skill to be able to open to that fear um, and see that behind it is a much deeper fear of death, the death of the stories we have about ourselves. Uh, the composer John Cage says, wouldn't it be so great if unemployment rates were so high that people actually had to do what they were supposed to do. So many of us have jobs that don't have any meaning. And um, so fear arises, and it's healthy. One more question or comment. And then we'll bring an end to our morning. Uh, I have a question about technique. Um, yes. I'm, when I'm sort of struggling with the thoughts, mm -hmm. sometimes I'm trying to bring it back to the breathing. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I'm, I'm not sure if this is like I'm kind of very too quick almost to try to bring it back to the breathing. Yeah. But if I try to sit with where I'm at when I realize I've far away from the breathing, mm -hmm. I find I just stay in that a little bit too longer. Uh -huh. So instead of not sure whether, like, at what, you know, bringing it back to the breathing, how much do you stay when you realize yeah. you've lost track? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, so you've realized you've lost, you know, that. so there's, uh, you know, something that you become kind of obsessed with. You, you start noticing that. And then you become aware that you're not with the breath anymore. After years of practice, it's just a little flag goes up and you just come back. Uh, but for the first while, um, we notice what sh shows up there and we check it out. Oh, isn't this interesting? Yeah. And then we really check our attitude about it. So, for example, if there is pain in the knee and the attitude is, oh, I hate this. We, we see that there's this attitude of aversion. And that attitude of aversion is contributing to the pain. And so we just, in noticing the attitude, 
the aversion can't operate as clearly. Just awareness makes what you're noticing get kind of shy. And it becomes a bit embarrassed. And it just sort of stops. And sometimes it's relentless, so you come back to the breath. But you only need to come back two, three, four times before it lightens up and then dissolves and something else shows up. Uh, In Tibetan Buddhism, this is called uh, self-liberation. And what it's referring to is not that the self becomes liberated, but that any object of attention liberates itself. This is really helpful to see. That in a way, you don't have to let go of the pain in the knee. You just have to notice pain in the knee, and it lets go of itself. You see? Uh, One of my first teachers taught me this. We were on Richmond Street, and um, there was a glass window where we were practicing. And the way she taught self-liberation was she took a $5 bill, and she walked outside, put it on the sidewalk, We came in, closed our eyes, sat for five minutes, opened our eyes, the $5 bill was gone. She said, there, self-liberation. The $5 bill liberated itself. (laughs) And uh, it was so helpful, right? Because, you know, your sadness liberates itself. Your loneliness liberates itself. Your fear liberates itself when you make room. That's what I said earlier, this kind of spaciousness. Some silence around what's there. So yes, you have to come back a few times, and then once you do, it liberates itself. You don't have to make it go away. And uh, isn't that an amazing thing to see, for those of you who have had this experience so far in this workshop, that you know, when you come back a few times to the breath, whatever you were caught up in just seems to move on. It dies. Uh, it liberates itself. Yeah. So you don't have to do so much. And boy, this is helpful for therapists because sometimes as therapists, you know, we're sitting across from someone and we're getting paid. And uh, s- some of you also might have really high fees. So like, you're getting paid a lot of money. You better do something. And yet, at the same time, you know, a lot of what the person's bringing just liberates itself. And actually, the more you do to try and fix it, actually, the less chance it has to liberate itself. So actually, it's, you know, really to see that as a therapist, that, you know, the best thing you can do is be kind of lazy and and charge a lot of money for that. (laughs) Did you have your, your hand up? I was going to say, a lot of the time, and not all the time, like in practice, because I'm fairly new to the practice in the yeah. last year, a lot of the time I still am aware of judgment that comes along with it. So coming yeah. back the fourth time, it's more like, yeah. oh, <laughs> like how many times or how long have yeah. I been doing it? And that's, that's a lot of my thought process is trying to yeah. back up. Yeah, so, so mindfulness is characterized by the absence of judgment. Mm-hmm. So if you're scary. judging what you're noticing, that's not awareness. Mm-hmm. So Awareness is being aware of how you're aware. See, oh, I'm looking at that through self-judgment. And then as soon as you bring attention to that, the self-judgment starts getting shy, Mm -hmm. and it it can't work so clearly. And that's, I think, for me anyways, it's only been a matter of time to be able to do that. Yeah. The the judgment's starting to fade a lot now. And then then getting into the, the realm of being able to still come back four or five times. Yeah. And the fact that you're here in this formal practice, coming back, uh, creates a complementary opposite to the self-judgment. And the deeper you plant those grooves, or the more you plant them, the deeper and deeper they get. Yeah. Yes, last question. Nicole. I think that when I'm doing, like, this kind of breathing, I'm like, where is that to the breathing? Yeah. Aggravated. Especially on the, the in-breath. Mm-hmm. And then when I exhale, I'm fine. So I, I, I'm just trying to figure out how that fits with what you said a few minutes ago about um, look at something. Yeah. I would suggest that you sit with your eyes closed. And if you get aggravated on the inhale, 
just to really relax on the exhale. So really feel that the exhale has no effort in it. And really focus on your exhale. And when the exhale gets really relaxed, then the inhale will become relaxed automatically. Yeah. See if that works. But really relax on the exhale. And like I was saying, you know, there's always a place in your either the inhale or the exhale where it's soothing. And so to find that, you know, if you have trouble with the inhale, then find it in your exhale. Like don't go find it where it's already hard. Just go to where it's smooth and really establish that where it's smooth and it will grow into the inhale. Yeah. Maybe. We'll see. Okay. So thank you for your practice this morning. It was, uh, I, I can really feel the difference in the room. Um, just the kind of settling and settling and settling. I don't know about you, but you know, once we hit the two-day mark, like you might as well just go for another 10 days. <laughs> um,